Hi, everybody. My name is Jay Erickson, and I get to uh, read the, the scripture with you today. So if you have your Bible, please open up to Psalm 94. We'll be reading an excerpt from there. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, our ushers certainly have some. Um, if you don't have one at home, we ask that you take this with you as our gift to you, um, that you would have one in your home, uh, and that you would, you would have the opportunity to use it and read it. Uh, so Psalm 94. It says, The Lord is a God who avenges. O God, who avenges, shine forth, rise up, judge of the earth, pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the foreigner. They murder the fatherless. They say the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob takes no notice. Take notice. You senseless ones among the people, you fools, when will you become wise? Does he who fashioned the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplines the nations not punish? Does he who teaches mankind lack knowledge? The wicked band together against the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my fortress and my God, the rock in whom I take refuge. He will repay them for their sins and destroy them for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will destroy them. Amen. Well, we are closing our series on the Psalms today. I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have. I I plan on doing another series like this at some point because preaching on the Psalms is just like there's like a smorgasbord of options. Like you can talk about anything because there's so much there you know and so it's a lot of fun for me Um, but we're closing out our series today and as you may have picked up from that psalm we're going to talk about something um, with a really light and easy topic it's God's judgment and uh, Christians have today an uneasy relationship with the idea of God's judgment it seems to me we often simply don't talk about it don't want to think about it then there's some of us that maybe talk and think about it a little too much, right? Um, but some of us even have completely written it out of, out of our theologies, which is difficult because it's all over the place in the Bible, this idea of God's judgment. Christians aren't the only ones who are avoiding the concept of judgment. It's a topic everybody prefers to avoid. In fact, Google has this kind of neat tool. You can go in there and you can, you can actually see the usage of a word across history. And uh, so you go in there, you type in the word judgment, and what you're going to notice is that going back to the year 1800, it peaked around the year 1900 or so, or 1890, and uh, it's been in precipitous decline ever since. We do not like to talk about judgment. And so we're just going to have to buckle up today, and hopefully it won't be quite as scary as what we often think. Um, today, when you encounter the word judgment, it's usually kind of in a negative sense. Like you sign up for a gym and they say, hey, this is a no-judgment zone. We don't like judgment. It's a dirty word. And so it's surprising for us to come to the Psalms and uh, look at how they talk about judgment. Listen to this, Psalm 96. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. I don't usually put the word rejoice and judge in the same sentence, but the psalmist does. Or Psalm 98 says, let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy, let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Isn't that happy? In the Psalms, God's judgment is not something to avoid, it's something to celebrate. 
We see it in our passage that Jay just read. The Lord is a God who avenges. O God who avenges, shine forth. Rise up, judge of the earth. The writer is exhorting God to come and judge. How strange. C.S. Lewis pointed out that when we hear the word judgment, our minds naturally and rightly think about a courtroom. Um, Now, for us kind of post-enlightenment Western folk, when we think about the courtroom scene, for whatever reason, we kind of go immediately to uh, this, like a criminal case, right? Where, um, you know, and, and where we're the defendant and God is going to issue the sentence if we're found guilty, you know? That's kind of when we think of the courtroom scene, that's where we go. But in the Psalms, judgment has a different kind of court in mind, at least often. Instead of a criminal case, it's more like a civil case, what we would call a civil case, where the psalmist is not the defendant, rather the person writing the psalm is the plaintiff. Uh, the plaintiff is the one who brings charges against someone. They're, they're seeking uh, to be repaid for damages done to them by somebody else. And, and the judge is the one who's going to uh, you know, affect justice in this particular case. Jesus talks about judgment in this way, in fact. He tells a parable about a judge who doesn't care about God, doesn't care about people, uh, and there's a widow in his village who is asking him to judge. She needs judgment in her case, and so maybe someone's taking her land or oppressing her or mistreating her, stealing her crops, who knows what's going on. So she comes to the judge, she says, give me mercy against, or give me justice, rather, against my adversary, and the judge refuses to give her the time of day But the widow is so persistent that eventually he says, okay, fine, I'll do it just to get you off my back. So for that widow, notice, judgment is victory. Judgment means that the person who has been oppressed will be free, will be liberated, will be repaid, and and the oppressor will be held accountable. For her, the arrival of the judge is good news what she's been praying for. She's finally being heard. Someone is finally going to act on her behalf. That is often how judgment appears in the Psalms. It's the cry of the hurting for God to bring justice to their cause. Imagine a world where you had to pay a doctor a bribe before they would operate on you. That happens today. In fact, many of you know Moses. He's our local outreach director. He grew up in Kenya. He told me the story about his sister when she went into the hospital she needed to have a c-section and the doctor wouldn't do it unless they paid him a bribe give me five hundred dollars and i'll on top of what you already are going to pay and then i'll do it for you or imagine being in a place where in order to drive from one town to another you had to drive through police checkpoints where you often had to pay the police a bribe these things happen all over the world we can be thankful that here in america We don't have to pay your doctor a bribe before they'll deliver your baby. Uh, That doesn't mean we have it all figured out. Uh, We're actually just finishing our eight-week class. We call it Revelation 7 because that's a chapter of the Bible where we see all nations of the world, all tribes, gathered around the throne of Jesus, worshiping him. And and we just believe that that's that's a vision of what the church needs to be like. And so we've been talking about race in the church and in America and stuff like that. It's been some some of the most... um, I don't know, some of the richest conversations that I've ever had in a church. Um, But here's something that I learned from the author of the book. His name's Jamar Tisby. Uh, Most of you know what I mean when I, if I were to come to you and say, hey, I had the talk with my kid. 
you'd be like, oh, talk about the birds and the bees, huh? Did you know that for a black family in America, the talk means something totally different? For a black family in America, the talk is telling your kids how to behave if they get pulled over by the police. You turn on the dome light if it's dark. Don't make any sudden moves. Keep your hands visible at all times. Stay calm, no matter what. That's the talk for a black family. See, I, I wish more of us could hear the song that is being sung underneath the cries for justice in our culture. I wish more Christians could listen to the cries of people and realize that at the heart of it, it's not an attack on you. But there is a song that we've heard before. We've heard this song before. It's a language that we should know. It's the language of Psalm 94. Rise up, judge of the earth, and pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the foreigner. They murder the fatherless. So what we're seeing here is that in the Bible, God's judgment can actually be something you want. It can be something you pray for and hope for and yearn for. In fact, what we find is that judgment can come in, in two ways. It can come as either a warning or it can come to you as a comfort. I want to explore for a, a minute today, uh, when God's judgment comes, how does it come to you? Because it can come, like I said, in one of two ways. It can come as a warning, or it can come as comfort, like in the case of the persistent widow. So we can think of it as like a tree diagram, all right? Up at the top, we've got judgment. All right, and then we're gonna, we got two different options. How are you gonna receive that judgment? Well, you got two options. It can be either a warning or a comfort depending on your heart, depending on where you're at. Are you the oppressed widow? Well, then it comes as a comfort. Are you the one oppressing the widow? Well, then it comes as a warning. It seems to me that my reaction to the words of judgment can be a pretty good indicator of which camp I'm in. If I hear that God is coming, and I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, that's not good, then maybe I'm over here. But if you hear that God is coming to judge, and you're like, bring it on, praise the Lord, I've been waiting for that, then maybe you're over here. You could be in one of those two camps. And those who are disinherited hear that God is coming to judge. Those are words of comfort. It's freedom. God hears them and is coming to act on their behalf. Psalm 94 is comfort for them. They resonate with verse 22. It says, but the Lord has become my fortress, my God, the rock in whom I take refuge. See, for this person, judgment is comfort. Now, once we hear words of judgment, once we read Psalm 94 and we recognize which one of these two camps that we're in, well, then the question becomes, what are you going to do about it? And if you're over here, if you hear judgment as comfort, well, then you can have relief. That's your response to judgment. You experience relief. But what if you're over here and you hear judgment as a warning? Well, then I'll tell you what the right response is. It's a little word we call repentance. 
repentance. Um, repent is another dirty word today. Nobody likes to repent, it seems, and because, I mean, repentance, that, that is to acknowledge uh, that I'm wrong. True repentance is not to simply say that what I did was wrong. That's an apology. <laughs> no, repentance is to say there's something here that is wrong. True, deep repentance requires me to take a look deep inside my soul and to admit that what's in there is not good. Uh, David, in Psalm 51, cries out, he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He's talking about, this is repentance here. It seems like today, whenever a celebrity says something bad, puts their foot in their mouth, you know, Twitter starts going after them, you know, they're going to get canceled, I don't know, whatever. Um, they always say kind of the same thing. They say, I'm sorry I said that, that's not who I am. I think David might beg to differ. In fact, Jesus says, of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. The things that we say are some reflection of who we are. We are willing, usually we are willing to admit that our actions might be some random aberration away from our normally impeccable character. But what we simply cannot handle is the suggestion that we may, in fact, in our heart of hearts, simply be wrong. That there may actually be wickedness there. Such a notion is unbearable for us, it seems. But our faith teaches otherwise. I like how the NLT puts Jeremiah 17.9. It says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things, and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? I think Christians have to relearn how to repent, how to lament our sin, how to stand under God's judgment here. Instead of ignoring it, instead of pretending it's not there, to face it in repentance. Because what we have today is we have a whole bunch of Christians defending themselves, shifting blame, trying to blame others, trying to blame the victims, attacking and accusing and covering up sins. And to put it nicely, it's a bad look. And so what this shows us, our, our reaction we often, we often see, well, I wish that repentance would be our reaction. What we often see is a different reaction when, when God's judgment comes to us as a warning. What we often see is that people reject the warning. They reject the warning. They deny, they accuse, they blame the victim, all those things. So, but the Bible is clear. Here's the problem. The Bible is clear. The judge is coming, and if you receive it as a warning and then you reject it, well, that's going to lead to regret. That's going to lead to regret. So, what about these other two options? Where does this lead? Where do these lead? Here's what's cool. Check this out. This is what's amazing about the gospel. Those of us here in the warning camp and those of us here in the comfort camp can end up in the same place. Restoration. Restoration. Okay, so this is something we see in the Psalms. Jesus also makes it clear. Repentance brings restoration. Look at this. I don't know. This is, I just think this is cool, Okay. We don't like judgment because we assume we're here, right? This is, we assume this is where we are all the time. We, we just 
kind of naturally, we talked about our brains default to like the criminal case. We're the defendant. We're the guilty ones. You know, that's not necessarily true. Like some of us might be over here. Like judgment might be good news to you today. It's good news for a lot of people, right? Uh, But here's what's really cool. Even if you're here, you can still end up there. You can be in the same place as that guy. Judgment's not bad news. It's good news. If only we would learn. Where did my marker go? If only we would learn the gift and the freedom that this brings us. But instead, we're so scared of it all the time. Oh, I can't possibly. What if that, to reveal that perhaps there's something in me that's not okay? Perhaps there's something in me that needs fixing that I can't fix myself for whatever reason that terrifies us. But it's not scary, it's amazing. To realize that you have a God who loves you so much and a God who is so powerful that he can take the things that are wrong in your heart and he can actually flip that thing upside down and make you into a person who's holy. There's nothing to run from. Nothing to run from. In fact, we should run towards it. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Not most, not a little bit, but all. So what we're learning is that God's judgment is something we can rejoice in. I love the fact that God is judge. That's good news. It means we worship a God who will not let let evil go unchecked. Our God is a rescuer, rescuer of the downtrodden, He is on the side of the oppressed. Those who take advantage of others should hear the words of verse 23. He will repay them for their sins. But look, when the warning comes, when the warning comes to us, because it doesn't have to be the end of the story because of this thing we call grace. Listen, because of grace, the one who stands under the warning of judgment can become like the one who stands under the comfort of judgment. I just think that's pretty cool. If you come to the Lord, he will take that weight away. You really can be restored. Do not go here. I don't know if we just think that we can handle it or that we don't need God or what, but it just betrays our foolishness that we think that this is a better way to go. But we do it all the time. We do it all the time. Accept the freeing and exhilarating and liberating gift of repentance. Uh, when we started our series, you might remember, kind of had this illustration of this classic children's toy. I've got this wooden box here, and inside of it, I've got a block, and uh, the child has to figure out which hole the block goes in, right? And, and what we often do is we assume that we are the box and God is the block and that it's God's job to shape his life into ours. The Psalms help us understand, no, no, no. That's not how it works. You see, God is the box. You are the block. You fit your life into God's. And now, if that sounds limiting, if that sounds restraining, um, the, the fact is, what we've learned is that God is the author of life God understands how life should be lived, and in fact, it's not being limited, it's being freed when we, when we allow ourselves to live the lives that God has set before us. 
Only then can we live lives of goodness and love and mercy and justice. While I was working at my former church, the church that um, actually launched us to Des Moines, our mother church in Sioux Falls, uh, we were in the process of planting our very first campus. That means um, some you know, churches have multiple locations, right? Same church, multiple locations. We're going to launch a campus. So we'd be one church in two places. And we hired a pastor to lead the new campus. Now, his job was to get this thing off the ground. But what often happens when you start a campus at a church, it can be complicated. Uh, it's, it can be harder than just planting a church that's its own separate thing. Because when you've got multiple locations, that's very, that can be a logistical nightmare. And so the uh, new campus pastor, his job was to start this thing. And one of the things that you have to do is try to get like the, the, the original campus and the people there to give up resources and to give up people and to give up time and to give up money for the sake of the new campus. And people, as you know, can be a little territorial sometimes, so that can be a little difficult. And we're sitting in staff meeting one day, and I said something, I don't even remember what it was, I said something kind of demeaning about the new campus. You see, I was over the original campus, so it was my job to lead that one, the big one. And I said something a little dismissive of the, the new campus. And uh, this new pastor, he came into my office the next day and he sat down, he said, Phil, I gotta get this off my chest. Um, what you said back there, that, I didn't, that didn't make me feel very good. Uh, and... I gotta say, it was pretty cool of him to do that. I mean, he was brand new, you know, he didn't quite know us all that well yet, but he, he was like, I have a job to do, and I'm gonna do it, and I'm gonna be clear about things that happen. I wish more of us could do that. Um, so anyway, I heard what he said. I thought about it for a second. It was like a switch flipped in me, and I realized, I saw myself saying it through his eyes, and I suddenly realized that what seemed harmless to me at the time actually betrayed something in my heart that I didn't know was there, that I really only cared about what I was doing, that I wasn't being a team player. I said to him, look, you're right. That wasn't okay. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I will do better. And you know what? Our relationship got better after that. Isn't that funny? It's just amazing to me how there can be a rupture in a relationship, but when that rupture goes through repair, the relationship is better than it was before. And so today, if you, if you find yourself kind of in this camp, the warning camp, uh, and you're scared about what might happen, if you admit it, um, I'll tell you what's going to happen. Your relationship with God is going to get better. Your relationship with whoever it is that you need to go talk to, it very well may get better. I mean, obviously, there's, you know, they've got a part to play as well. You can't control that. But in my experience, when we repent before God and before other people, our relationships get better. It's a gift. Judgment can be a gift because it can spur us on to repentance, which leads to restoration. You can end up in the same place as that person. So we all need God to come as judge. As you came in today, um, you received a little card, and it has some words on it and a big place to write. It just says, today God's judgment comes to me as a blank. And I want you to take a moment and ask yourself, does God's judgment come to me today? When I read Psalm 94, do I receive those words as a warning or as a comfort? You could be in either one. Who knows? Maybe you've got a third category that I didn't think about today. Put that down. But I just want you to spend some time, honest, vulnerable time with the Lord and say, how does his judgment come to me today? It's real. We can't ignore it in the Bible. 
Does it come to you as a warning or as a comfort? Um, one thing I should add, I keep going on about how cool this is that this guy and this one can end up here. Well, how? Through the cross. That's how. And so when you come today, you're not just coming to receive something. You're coming to the cross. You're coming to engage and understand and receive the grace that comes through the death of Christ. And so as we play this last song, as they play this last song, um, just write whatever it is in that box on your card. If you don't have a pen, there is one up here. You can use it and write it down. Come down front and drop it in the basket here on the stage. And then I want you to grab this other card and take this with you. And you can put this somewhere where you'll see it if you want. And it's just Psalm 51 verse 12. It says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And look, I know a lot of people here, we've been Christians for a little while, some of us. And sometimes it's, you start to forget what an incredible, what incredible news this is right here. You start to take for granted the fact that, I mean, some of us just, we walk around with so much shame. We just kind of camp out here forever and don't know how to get out of it. God has given us a way out. And so let's take it. Would you pray with me? Well, God, hopefully today, I don't know if my delivery of my words and all that stuff has been great or not. Lord, I know that your word uh, pierces the, the hardest and the coldest of the human heart. That it separates joint from marrow. And so I ask that your word would come through today. God, I ask that your word would come and, and that it would convict or that it would comfort, that it would warn or comfort whatever, whoever it is, that whatever they need, Lord, today, that it would bring that and that we might be able to be restored once again. Lord, I'm grateful for your infinite love and mercy for us, towards us. And um, God, the fact that we can stand here and even rejoice, we can celebrate a psalm, even one like Psalm 94, and it's only because of your love. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.